Hello, left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. LFI is opening the BEC with Passive Investing with Left Field Investors, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate limited partners. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in Left Field this year, then imagine them both back-to-back. The Best Ever Conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing with left field investors includes admission to the entire Best Ever Conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then, immerse yourself in the full Best Ever Conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing with Left Field Investors at the BEC. Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pool your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to TribeVest.com to get started today. We don't really have a housing market crash. It's just nobody's really buying and selling right now, right? Everybody's just kind of like, I've got my 30-year fixed rate 3% mortgage. I'm not selling because <laughs> I don't want to buy another house that you know may be less expensive but more expensive on the mortgage and really not give me any benefits. So a, lot of, a lot of stuff just isn't happening. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hi, this is Peter Lenneman, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm excited today to have Ryan Gibson with us. He is the co-founder, president, and chief investment officer of Spartan Investment. There, yeah, in Spartan Investment Group, excuse me. They are a left field investor preferred partner, and we are thankful for that. Uh, Ryan has organized over $200 million of private equity for Spartan's projects across the country. Outside of Spartan, Ryan is also a highly experienced commercial airline pilot and the host of Passive Income for Pilots, a, uh, a podcast that talks about exactly what we're talking about today, right? Investing. And he's a previous <laughs> guest on episode 69 back in June of 2022. So we're excited to get an update what's going on with self-storage. Ryan, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks for having me back, Jim. It's uh, it's been quite uh, uh, entertaining and, and awesome to watch what you guys have built at, at LFI. So it's fun to get back on the show with you. Well, we appreciate it, and of course, we always appreciate the support of Spartan. You guys have been a great supporter of ours, and we're thankful for that. The first question I want to ask is, you know, we already had you on once before, so if people want the full backstory, they can go back to episode sixty-nine. But let's get the abridged backstory, and, and as we said earlier, we'll, we'll see if it matches up with what you told us last time. How'd you get here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was an airline pilot for actually 17 years, and uh, you know, flew, learned how to fly in high school, 
got hired uh, by the airlines right out of college. And, you know, I, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart and quickly um, found other things to do outside of flying. And one of those things was real estate investing. I started Pilot Crash Pads in, ah, geez, about probably about 17, probably about 19 years ago, actually. Uh, time flies. And kind of got into that, but uh, really didn't scratch the entrepreneurial itch as much as I wanted. I moved to Washington, D.C. I, I bumped into my neighbor, who became my business partner, and uh, he bought the house next door to me, Scott Lewis, uh, military veteran, army guy, and we ended up flipping a bunch of houses and building a bunch of condos in D.C. to get Spartan started. And uh, so I was working in the airlines as a pilot and also uh, working to, to build Spartan on the side with, with Scott. And we kind of got uh, fed up with residential stuff. And we said, hey, what's easy to own, easy to evict, and easy to maintain? So we pivoted to self-storage because that it was all of those things. That was our decision-making criteria. We also like that it has a you know 40-year history of good performance. Uh, so we jumped into self-storage in 2016 is when we made that decision. And then we just got busy building an awesome company uh, that goes out and buys, builds, and operates self-storage across the country. We've grown that to the 36th largest self-storage operator or self-storage owner in the country. And, uh, you know, we've been uh, growing and, and, and developing our team ever since. Uh, but that's really kind of my start, um, you know, kind of, a, kind of an airline pilot guy. Uh, you know, in the airlines, I did a bunch of different things. I was a chief pilot, Czech airman, sim instructor, did some flight tech tech pilot stuff, um, like started the iPad program at a, at a regional airline, uh, worked for the as a consultant for the FAA for a while. So really, really involved in aviation. So um, naturally, I, uh, I bumped into a pilot, uh, Tate Durier, at a real estate conference, actually the best ever conference. And uh, we kicked off and started a, a podcast um, that is called Passive Income Pilots. And it focuses on high earning airline pilots, you know, high income earning airline pilots and kind of how to strategize uh, their wealth and, um, you know, different things that we can do. Because unfortunately, you know, I didn't really have any pilot mentors that knew about investing and could see things through the lens of a pilot. And so, um, you know, I kind of figured it all out on my own with podcast webinars, going to meetups, you know, networking. So Tate and I kind of share our network with all the people we've met and all the experts in the field. Um, you know, there's a, there's an old joke with airline pilots, you know, never take investing advice, uh, ne never take investing advice from a pilot. Um, and so, uh, you know, our, our show is to bring on people that we can then uh, get the information and, and the uh, experience from. So um, really, really fun. Uh, we have a lot of fun putting that, that show together. And obviously, it's not just for airline pilots. It could be for any doctor, lawyer, engineer, uh, or otherwise high-paid professional that is looking to build their passive income portfolio. Um, but we do have a slant towards pilots because that's what we do. Um, and yeah, so hopefully that checks with the last story, but that's that's my uh, that's my one-minute story, two-minute story. No, that's great. The, the podcast is new, and I will say it's not only for uh, um, high-earning W-2 earners. I, I listen to it as well, and it, it, and it's just, it's got a lot of good stuff in it. It's it's meant for passive investors, and clearly there's some stuff in there that is specific to pilots. And um, but but it, it's still a good a good podcast to go for general information. Now you you mentioned pilot crash pads. What what exactly? Because I don't think we talked about that last time. What is that? Oh yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of becoming less of a thing, but it, but it's been a, an industry uh, staple for gosh, I mean, 
you know, the last 80 or 90 years, basically since the, the airline pilot profession has been like a thing, uh, where pilots can live wherever they want in the world. And they are responsible for getting themselves to work. So a pilot that lives in Wisconsin that is based in New York, uh, they, they have to make themselves available, maybe at LaGuardia or Kennedy or whatever. Um, they can commute on their own time and own dime to to New York, but then they need to be, be ready for their flight, say, the next day at 6 a.m. So they need a place to crash. And they don't want to get some super expensive hotel. They just need a place to hang their hat for eight or nine hours before their next flight. That's not covered by the airlines. Um, so they fly in, and I would set up pilot housing around airports uh, that would provide housing for pilots to uh, to do that. And, you know, I was 21 at the time when I did it. I had no money. I was a broke uh, brand new airline pilot. They get paid really well now, by the way, first couple of years. But back then it was like, you know, you made like 25, 30,000. So what I did was I organized an apartment and uh, basically had, you know, multiple pilots renting for me and I'd take the the arbitrage off the um, the income I would generate from collecting the, the revenue from the pilots and then what my expenses would be as, a, as a, an apartment holder. Um, and I would clear it with the landlord and get it in the lease and make sure that, you know, it was all above board. Um, but that's pilot house. That's pilot crash pads, and they they still exist today. Although the airline pilot uh, career has been be- become very lucrative, and I know that some pilot pilot contracts have actually included you know pre trip housing into their uh, package now, where like, like housing is included or whatever. Now, of course, you're always you know the, the airline always pays for your housing when you're on a trip, uh, but just not before and after. So, but that's even changing. So, you know, I don't know how lucrative crash pads are anymore. Um, I did it during the days of, like, no PayPal, no Venmo. So, I, you know, a box on the wall with checks that we put in there and had to come collect the checks or, or get paid cash or something. So um, a lot easier to run now. But, but really, if you do the math, it's, it's not much better than just having a long-term rental or uh, an Airbnb that's, you know, hosted by a professional host. Um, but... It was fun. Yeah, but, but I did it for a few years. It's interesting yeah. how you find, like, in your job, and and this is good advice for anyone, right? Who wants a, you know, now they call them side hustles, uh, but but it led probably that led to the real estate, right? Because you did that, and then you lo- then you learned a little bit about real estate, and that allowed you to transition to flipping houses, and then now all of a sudden you're the 36th largest uh, self storage company in in the country. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that one little thing like crash pads, if you didn't do that, you might not be here where you are right now. So it's just an interesting start, I think. Yeah, or otherwise, a great way to scratch an entrepreneurial itch. Um, you know, and just kind of when you're feeling your way around, you just try different things. Um, and eventually, you kind of find what, what your strengths are. And, and that's what you go after. And, and, you know, I think that's what we've done with Spartan is, you know, Scott's a strong leader, my business partner. And so he's built a culture at Spartan and attracted top talent. Um, you know, on my side of the house, I've been focused on, you know, building out our investor relations team and, and raising capital um, and also doing some of the business building stuff, obviously, with Scott. But, um, you know, I'm right in the zone now. I feel like I, I found my love and my passion uh, with Spartan, and uh, it's really been a lot of fun. Well, that's fantastic. You know, when, when you find something you love doing, that's that's what you want to put your focus on. And speaking of that, can you give us kind of an update on the state of the self-storage market um, last year in June 2022, and we're recording this in late October, Halloween actually, of 2023, um, you had said the market is overheated. Is that still the case, or can you give us a little bit update of, of where we're at? You know, I, it's amazing that 
there's we're getting the value. So we've sold a lot of property in the last 30 days, uh, 30 to 60 days. I think specifically in the last 30 days, we've sold like six or seven properties. And it's incredible what people are still paying for them. Uh, cap rates really, you know, if you read all the Green Street data, it's going to tell you, and the, and the information is going to tell you, that cap rates have expanded or, or property values have slightly declined. Um, but we're not seeing that. We're actually seeing a pretty strong appetite for buying these properties, you know, sub five caps still. Uh, and, and, you know, these are first-gen properties that are, you know, in tertiary markets. This isn't like a Class A in a downtown or glass three-story building. So we're seeing values really strong. Uh, personally experiencing that as of the last 30 days of this recording. Uh, so that's that's good. Um, you know, I, I think that with disruption becomes um, self-storage boom, right? So usually self-storage does well when something has been, you know, incredibly disrupted. I mean, so when you think about the disruptions that are happening in today's economy, there really hasn't been um, a lot of moving activity. There hasn't been a lot of home sales or things that have been trading. So self-storage has been relatively flat in its operational performance this year. But as far as an asset that capital wants to get into, it's to, it's been really strong. Um, I wouldn't say, I think overheated is a, is a strong word, but I, I would say that it's consistently becoming part of a main food group in CRE or commercial real estate. Um, I would say seasonally, we didn't have the best uh, leasing season as an industry uh, because of home sales really slowing. That's what people speculate on. Uh, but I think long term, the asset is extremely health healthy. And I think supply has been a bit limited in a lot of markets because of the inefficiency to get debt and the kind of inefficient market that we're in. So I think building new property today, if you can get your arms around the financing, the construction, and get it done. I think those those types of investments, I think that are being built now, are really going to pay dividends in the future, where maybe capital gets a little bit more accessible, um, and things you know kind of work out. But um, the other thing that's really interesting right now is a lot of the REITs aren't buying; their pencils down. So when you think about the transaction volume and the and the values that we're getting today, without the REITs really participating at the moment. It's pretty impressive uh, with what we're seeing in, in values because you have a lot of buyers on the sidelines that have the biggest uh, buying power. So I, as an industry, I think it's um, it's good fundamentals. Um, the fundamentals have not gone away. Um, I would say at the, at the second, at the heartbeat, it's not necessarily the double-digit rent growth that we had um, during the pandemic, um, but it's certainly not down. And if you read the REIT reports, People are like, oh, you know, move outs are up and, and pricing is down. But if you actually read the read, the REIT reports, uh, the publicly traded storage companies, um, NOI is up year over year. So they're they're still seeing same store, you know, growth uh, in their portfolio. Um, but maybe their pricing has come down a little bit off the hist off the uh, historic highs of the of the uh, pandemic boom. Um, so. You know, I, I saw a lot of stuff like self-storage crashed and, and all that stuff. It's like it, it, it didn't crash. It just kind of went back to normalization. Mm. Um, but fundamentally, for the long haul, it's doing really well. And you you mentioned disruption is good for the industry. And that that's um, usually what people say is it's recession resistant, right? And And so this, you know, recession that we may or may not have had or will have or are currently having, you know, where no one really knows where we are right now. I, I find it interesting that that you've you've 
said disruption is good rather than, hey, this is an asset class that does well in a recession. Can you talk a little bit about why disruption is one of the things that that self-storage thrives on? And I like the cat- the categorization of that rather than recession-resistant. Disruption makes more sense to me. Absolutely. You, you nailed it. And I actually love the way you, you frame that. I'm actually going to probably re-articulate the way I describe this. But um, yeah, w- when you move, you have to use storage. Typically, you don't have to. Um, you know, Usually when I get in front of a, an audience and I say, um, I try to demystify why people use storage. Everybody thinks, oh, it's America's overabundance of our stuff. And it, no doubt we have a lot of stuff. But I always ask the room, how many people here have used stor- storage before, ever? And about every other hand in the room goes up. And I say, okay, keep your hand in the air if you use self-storage because you have too much stuff and all the hands go down. And I ask people, why did you use self-storage? And they say, because I moved, because I had a home renovation, because I had a death in the family, I have a growing family, I needed extra space in my house because I needed a gym and an office because now now I'm a work-from-home parent. Or I was packaging up all my stuff in an RV and hitting the road. Um, Or, you know divorce or things that created some kind of disruption in their in their life and you know moving is a disruption that's a disruptive thing that happens to you and then that usually triggers a self-storage event Um, in businesses um, you're going to have uh, disruption and you're going to have moments where businesses need to use self-storage you know if you're a little league baseball team and you need a storage locker to house all your equipment or if you're a sheet metal contractor etsy amazon business person you're going to need a storage unit you know, 30% of our business is actually business owners. So when you don't have home sales and you don't have a lot of moves going on, you don't really have a lot of disruption in people's lives. And so you're going to see a declining use of storage. I think what's interesting is we don't really have a housing market crash. It's just nobody's really buying and selling right now, right? Everybody's just kind of like, I've got my 30-year fixed rate 3% mortgage. I'm not selling because <laughs> I don't want to buy another house that you know may be less expensive but more expensive on the mortgage and really not give me any benefits. So a, lot of, a lot of stuff just isn't happening. So that means that storage has just been kind of regular. It's just been kind of flat you know, for the last few months. When that activity picks up, you better believe everybody's going to be buying the stuff they wish they would have bought you know, one or two years ago, and that disruption is going to start increasing. And that's why when you, when you saw COVID, you saw tons of disruption. You saw people moving... You know, work from home was like a boom, right? And so when you have that, when you have, now I can't go to the gym, I need to work out in my house, I have all this stuff, what do I do with it? You had people who were moving, moving into RVs and traveling the country. Lots of different things were happening um, that disrupted people's lives. So um, I think that's kind of gone away. And then you also have um, just a slowing housing, housing market. And those are two main drivers. There's probably a lot of other things that I could talk about for hours, but uh, those are probably the main highlights. And so you said that um, the REITs aren't buying, but you've sold several properties recently. So who's buying from you? And then are also aside aside from that, you know, when they're buying from you, they're buying something that's already been, you know, some renovations done, some value added, right? Because that's what you guys do. So who's buying from you? And then who are you buying from? Are you still buying from the mom and pops? Because I assume that you're still in the market for getting new properties as well. Yeah. So we've sold to you know it's it's interesting so i think the portfolio premium strategy is still at play but you're not seeing the big check writers um in the market for portfolios right now as much so the premium 
is still a long-term strategy that we have where you, you amass a portfolio, you get a premium for uh, being able to write a bigger check. What's interesting is the REITs aren't at play, but larger institutional operators are still really active and they're actually buying one-off properties more than they have ever before. So, you know, probably four of the seven or so properties we've sold have been to a larger private uh, kind of in more institutional operator that have that is, has been buying one-off properties. So I would say that's one category. Another category is like another syndicator or a regional operator that is boots on the ground in that market that wants storage in their portfolio um, or small family office. And then 1031 exchange uh, buyers are still looking for yield on, on assets and self-storage is got that reputation of you know being a little bit lower operating headache. Um, so we're seeing that. Um, and then we've also seen buyers that are just mom and pop. Uh, quite frankly, we sold uh, one of our assets in the Southeast portfolio just yesterday uh, in Warner Robins. We sold that asset to a mom and pop operator. He has uh, a couple properties in that market already and just really wanted our property because it was you know already in his wheelhouse. Um, so we're, see- we're still seeing a lot of activity or thirst for that. And we also have like our, our fellow competitors that are buying these properties as well. Hi guys, my name is Vikram Rai. I'm CEO and co-founder of Viking Capital. And we believe that multifamily investing presents a significant opportunity for investors to build sustainable wealth and achieve financial freedom through diversification. We are backed by a team of seasoned real estate experts. We have deep financial analysis and data-driven processes for asset and property management. And this allows Viking Capital to leave no stone unturned in the pursuit of outstanding returns for our investors. Our investment strategy is anchored in identifying low-risk opportunities that offer significant value add potential, enabling us to preserve our investors' capital, all the while maximizing their long-term growth potential. Viking Capital has collectively raised over $250 million and currently has 5,000 doors under management. Learn more about all our current deal offerings at vikingmultifamily.com. This is Zach Hapensall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full-cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E 48 equity.com backslash invest. Now I want to talk about because I'm I'm an investor and and I'm invested in uh, thankfully one of the one of the uh, deals that just had one of the properties sold the Tyler Longview portfolio and you know for every fifty grand you invested you're getting fifty three back is my understanding and you just sold one piece of the portfolio so we still have all the other properties so the infinite return model of of what everybody kind of likes is what's in play. So can you talk about that and the decision to sell that one and and what happened with that portfolio that made it such a great success? Yeah. So um, I won't share uh, pricing of properties on on a public uh, podcast just because um, I don't, uh, Texas is uh, bloodthirsty for uh, valuations of, of assets um, so they can reassess your property. So I, I'll, I'll try to speak around the, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the sales price. But we bought a portfolio, you know, I'll, I'll try to keep this short, four, four properties in COVID actually um, that you invested in. 
And we actually found a fifth property that we included in and, and figured out a way to manage that, uh, add that property into the portfolio without any additional equity needed. We just kind of financed it uh, creatively. So you ended up with five properties when you're only supposed to have four. And um, and then we got a great offer to unload uh, one of the assets for four times what we paid for it. Um, something like that, three and a half times what we paid for it. Um, which was fantastic because um, not only that that one property sold for om- for almost what we paid for all five, um, and so it was an easy decision uh, to get that price to where we where we had it. Um, and uh, when we sold the property, uh, we were able to not only return all of your capital, uh, but a, but a three thousand dollars in profit on top of that. And we've been cash flowing, I don't know, seven to ten percent cash on cash uh, for the last thirty six months. So it's been a, one of those just Grand Slam, as you put it, uh, investments. Um, and what's neat is we actually exhausted the debt on another property in that portfolio. So, so of the four that remain, uh, we've got a tremendous valuation. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share that because it's spread across many properties. But 19 million bucks that um, you know that we only have five million dollars of debt on. Um, so now you've got all your money back and about three hundred and forty-five thousand dollars a year of cash flow on the on the portfolio, which is still going to provide you with income. So that infinite return is there, um, and just a great way to you know those those are the deals that we like. That's a typical, I shouldn't say it's a typical Spartan deal, but that's the kind of stuff that happens at Spartan. Um, you know, I like to say, oh, this will never happen again, but you know, it keeps happening. A lot of our, um, you know, we haven't sold a lot up until thirty days ago. Um, a lot of our holdings are now starting to turn over for phenomenal returns, um, which is which is fantastic. Um, now uh, that that portfolio will hold, and eventually we'll sell the remaining four assets, or um, and and you know return more, more return more cash at some point. So really really just excited about how that went. So yeah, I, I am too. I'm thankful that I'm that I'm in that one, and then. You know, I, we also have to talk about challenges, right? And I know there's a there's a Dallas yep. portfolio yep. that has had um, some, I guess, challenges, right? So can you talk about that too? It's not you're never going to get into this this uh, passive investing deal and yep. have all winners, right? You're going to have some that struggle, and I think it's illustrative of, of what Spartan does to talk about, hey, here's one that we're struggling on, and here's what we're doing to get to to make it better. A- absolutely, and and I think it's important to to note that. Um, th- things aren't going to always go exactly as planned, um, but it's how you get back up. It's it's what you do with it uh, that really matters the most. So, uh, we bought a portfolio in late twenty in September twenty twenty one that um, we had financing tr- uh, uh, challenges with. And you know, if you go back in time, you'll read the news that you know in the winter of twenty twenty one. Interest rates were supposed to go up, and if you if you read most of the reports, you know the the smartest uh, shop said interest rates are going to go up, you know, a point to a point and a half um, in the new year. And so, unfortunately, by the time we had that financed, it was July of 2022, um, and you're like, wow, why didn't you why didn't you uh, finance it sooner? Well, we were trying. <laughs> we we had um, you know we we had I mean that was like all we were focused on for for a period of time. Um, and interest rates went up, you know, five and a half percent, not one point five in the worst case scenario. Uh, we ended up with a really good loan, but as a floating rate. And unfortunately, um, everything we've ever done at Spartan has been fixed interest rate. Uh, we never want a floating rate. Any floating rate we get, we turn down. Unfortunately, we our backs were against the wall on that one. We ended up with a floating rate, 
And that investment was at a, a SOFR plus 205, which in uh, early 2022, you, you were running worst case scenarios on a SOFR plus 205. And that's actually not a bad loan. But when interest rates go up 5.5%, it makes it a little bit less of a loan. So I, I don't think we're um, not experiencing any other challenges that other people are having. The good news, no capital calls. Um, and we're actually selling properties in that portfolio right now at a really great price. Um, so we're actually, we've got a plan to uh, completely eliminate the debt on that portfolio. So uh, we, we've got a plan to kind of work through the challenges that we've had. Um, we've staffed up our team really well with um, a regional manager that actually came from one of the, one of the REITs. Uh, we recruited a top executive out of uh, extra space to man our, our free up storage portfolio. And we've been putting resources into that portfolio to turn it around. We've actually sold three properties already uh, for great prices. Um, and again, we're just our plan is to kind of reduce the debt on the portfolio and refinance into a fixed rate um, long term uh, debt on that. So, you know, we're not perfect. I mean, I think uh, when you look at other big institutional shops, you look at the stock market, you look at other operators, um, they're going to have challenges too. And to think that you're never going to have a challenge and this is always going to be only upside, um, you're not, you're, you're, I think you're, you're, you're in for a surprise. Um, and operators that don't have challenges either haven't been around long enough or, you know, are, are, are not telling you the whole truth. I mean, we, we definitely have had our, our, our issues with DFW. Um, but, you know, I think the way the team has pivoted and the strategy that we have to fix it has been really good. So Yeah, and I think that's the key, right, is, is you're going to have these deals. You're not going to be a, a, a company that's investing in anything without having these struggles. It's, it's how do you – what do you do to fix it to make sure that in, in the end – it ends up where you want it to be. And, and in that I, a question I have is it seems like most of these deals you have, you're, you're buying groups of properties, right? It's not one single deal. It's not, I know you're doing a fund now, but these deals weren't part of a fund. They were just part of a package. Can you talk about the advantages and, and if there are any disadvantages to buying that way where you're buying three or four properties at once? It seems like you know, the advantage is you can, if, if one of the properties is having troubles, you might be able to get rid of it. Or if one of the properties is going gangbusters, you might be able to get rid of it. Both ways, you can save the rest of your portfolio. Can, so can you talk about why you structured the deals like that? Yeah, so I, I think first and foremost, I think one of the lessons learned from the, that portfolio was what we should have done was in the transaction, we should have broken up the assets that were ground up in value-add expansions and the ones that were just cash flow plays. And we should have offered it as two syndications, one for those that wanted the ground up more upside potential and ones that were just cash flow. Because there's some really good assets in that portfolio, um, depending on your investment preference. If you want that down and dirty expansion with no cash flow and absolute upside potential, you could have had that. If you wanted those steady eddies that just cash flowed, you could have had that. I think our lesson learned was we bought that portfolio as a big package and tried to thread the needle of satisfying the upside investors with the cash flow investors. And I think that's where a lot of the frustrations have come is it's not that it's a bad investment. It's a bad investment for those who have a profile that want cash flow. And so it's not going as projected, right? But it doesn't mean that the investment is going to lose money or that the investor is going to um, you know, have a, any negative uh, 
things come out of it when it's all sold and done, right? Because it's a five-year hold. So I think when you look at taking down a portfolio, I think the advantages are is that you can chop it up like that. Um, another advantage is you can finance it all with one lender. Um, you also get the economies of scale by having a lot of assets clustered within a particular market. Now, that, that portfolio may comprise several states, but that is pretty consistent with uh, being focused in one market. Um, I think it's a lot of work to buy one, a, a bigger portfolio like that because you're doing simultaneous due diligence um, in the portfolio. And so we've tried rolling closes and we've tried closing it all at once. Um, I think either way you do it, you're going to have your challenges. But um, there can be some great advantages to picking up some great product um, all at once. And then likewise, if you do it one syndication at a time, it's a lot of work to do, you know, to buy a small $5 million property at a self-storage facility. So there's advantages and disadvantages, but I think the, the, the takeaways there was just how we chopped up the portfolio. Um, I think we would have done it a little bit more strategically next time. And I want to talk about investor expectations because, you know, we went through a few years there where, you know, not just in self-storage, but all the asset classes, it seemed like, you know, you had a five-year business plan and it was completed in 18 months or two years. And so people got used to having these properties almost flip, right? Like you're, you're just doing a little bit yep. of rehab, then you sell it. Or they're used to the exact same amount of distributions every month, month after month. And, you know, they don't always, everything doesn't always run so smoothly. So, you know, not, we're not just talking about this DFW portfolio, but when something struggles after two years or interest rates go up faster than anybody ever thought or insurance costs go way up and all of a sudden investors are thinking, well, why isn't, you know, this five-year plan, you're, you're behind already after two years or you're withholding distributions. Can you talk about kind of managing those expectations? Because at left field investors, we, we try to say, hey, you know what, this is, you know, compared to the stock market, we're much better off. But sometimes withholding distributions is a good thing, or sometimes slowing down the business plan is a good thing. And you just got to look, well, hey, you're still going to be there after five years. So I know that was a lot, but can you kind of talk about that, that subject a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, our main goal is preserve capital. We don't want to lose anybody's money. And so when we think and make decisions, we're doing it in the best interests of the investors. And so, you know, I, I think being transparent about what you're doing, like we have been, uh, where we communicate on a monthly basis and we say, this is exactly what we're doing. This is what went wrong. This is what we're doing to fix it. And staying connected with the investors, I think, is really important. Um, but I do think if you're doing a syndication or you're investing with anybody or really doing any investing, you've got to know that there's going to be challenges in an investment. And so I think, um, you know, we've always done a pretty good job, I think, of managing expectations. Unfortunately, we were dealt a bad hand. And we were quick to hold webinars communicate monthly, share financials, share occupancy data. Um, and, and even though we acknowledge that things were, um, you know, we've had challenges, that all that information has been shared. Um, so I think managing expectations going forward um, is really just all about communicating with the investor to ensure that they understand what's going on and what we're doing to improve it. And so I, I think that's, that's part of it. Um, you know, as far as... Uh, you know, disclosing or talking about risks. I think that's why the PPM is so important because that's where we're going to kind of outline that, hey, this is an illiquid investment. 
these are just projections. You know, outside uh, things can influence or impact your, uh, you know, your your distribution or your potential profit. So, I think investors should be aware of that, and and also just kind of know that when you do these investments, that they're not always going to go perfectly. Um, and and I like I like what you said because, you know, a lot of our investments we've been landing punches right out of the gates. <laughs> it's like, you know, we bought an investment, and it's like, yeah, we thought rents were going to go up, you know, seven percent. Over a four-year or over a five-year period, and guess what? They went up twenty percent in the first month. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, and and you have this great news to share, and everybody's just like you said, everybody was kind of used to that, right? Um, but you know, we've also seen a lot of operations go sideways. We've seen tons of operators do capital calls, lose money, lose the assets, right? And so I think that um, I would pick an operator that can fight through that stuff like we have, right? Or, you know, or, and I could name some other operators that have too, right? Know they've had challenges, but it's like, what, what do you do now, right? Is your team still supporting? Are you still getting communication? Um, are, are you still connected with your operator and your investors? I think that's the, that's the important part when you have challenges because, you know, you, couldn't, you can have challenges. And it's, you know, and it's been, you know, quite frankly, our investors are on our team, right? We want to feel like we're on their team. And so, um, you know, it's good to stay connected, but, you know, support us, you know, because we, we want to win. It's not that we're against you. We, we, we want this to be successful just like you do. Um, so anything that any kind of encouragement or questions, you know, should come with, a, with an ounce of, you know, hey, I'm in this with you. I understand that things go bad. You know, here's here's what we want to hear more about, or here's what, you know, here you know, thank you for doing this, or you know, appreciate that communication because it kind of goes both ways, right? We're still people that want to make sure your investment is ultimately successful. So, yeah, and, and I hope that no, that, that's yeah. a great answer because if you're on a five year plan and you're two years into it and it's having struggles, and I'm not just talking about one specific portfolio, I'm just talking generally, you don't know where it's going to end up in five years, and so the nature of the business that we've chosen to invest in is it's long-term and it's very illiquid. So part of that is, is good, right? It, it means that you can't make rash decisions because you have, you know, as a passive investor, we have no choice. We're just surfing along alongside you. But you also have to understand that just because there was some challenges in the first two years, that doesn't mean that you're not going to knock it out of the park after five. And it also means that if you had a great first two years, it doesn't mean it's going to end up that way. So just things to think about, and I appreciate your your candor on that. Um, I did want to you you mentioned development um, when we just started out. So I just want to see if we can touch on that briefly. As kind of, are, are you guys looking to do more development? And when you talk about development, is that where you're buying a piece of land with nothing on it and you're putting up a self storage, or is it when you buy a self-storage facility and next to it, there's some extra land and you build some stuff up there. It seems like there's two, two different types of development. So if you can talk about that generally, it'd be great. Yeah. So our most popular fund this year, the one that I'm most bullish on is our growth fund, which focuses just on ground up developments or value addicts. More, the, the facilities are the most upside. So that two, two things you, you covered raw land development or buying a facility that's got uh, additional expansion or maybe even buying a facility that was just recently built. So um, I think that's where the most opportunities lie. And here's why. I think that it's really difficult to build right now because construction costs are kind of all over the map. And 
it's difficult to entitle in some municipalities due to code changes and regulation. But most importantly, financing is extremely challenging. So a lot of projects are failing um, because not our projects, but, you know, just company, you know, industry wide because they can't get financing. And um, when and but but at the same time, if you want to buy a property that's already been built and leased up, you're still going to pay a premium for it with a high interest rate that is going to create a negative cash and a negative leverage situation. So, you know, th- think about cap rates. Cap rates used to be uh, higher than interest rates. Now interest rates are higher than cap rates. So now you have negative leverage. So when you go to buy a property, the bid ask spread is so far apart to get to cash flow. So at the beginning of the year, we just said, you know what? We're not going to really probably find many facilities that cash flow because sellers are expecting a high price still. The market is paying for it and the interest rates are really high. So let's just acknowledge that cash flow is not going to be much of a thing this year. We, we, we launched an income fund. We were able to put two properties in it this year. Um, now, they cash flow really well, and the property, and if, God, if the interest rates go down even more, that thing is going to just roar with cash flow. One was bought at an 8% cap rate. But on the growth fund side of things, um, you know, and a little bit of a tangent there, you don't want to be a speculator. You want to be an investor. An investor invests in all points of the cycle, right? They don't just wait in time and time and time because that time just never go, is never right, right? So at this point in the cycle, my my theory is – it's hard to find cash flow. The bid ask isn't there. So how can you find value? Well, right now we can build for less than we can buy. And a, and a, and a metric that I like to go talk about, and I did a whole webinar on this, is called yield on cost. So yield on cost is kind of like your cap rate. A little bit different, but it's kind of like your cap rate. So yield on cost, if you take all of the construction costs, financing costs, land costs to build a brand new storage, and you divide that by, and you take the NOI at the stabilization uh, in the pro forma, and you divide it by the, all those costs, you get a yield on cost. Right now, we can build for a 9 to 11% yield on cost. That's like buying a brand new facility in this market for a 9 or 11% cap rate. It's very similar, right? So then we build the facility for, say, a 10 or 11% yield on cost, and when that facility becomes stabilized, let's say it's valued at a six or maybe even a, a sub six percent cap rate, call it a six and a half percent cap rate. You've created a spread between a 10 or 11 percent yield on cost and an exit cap rate of six or seven percent even, right? So you've created value at a time where it was very difficult to find value because interest rates are so high against against cap rates. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of numbers and a lot of math, but but suffice it to say, you know, the, 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 my point here is that it's easy to, it's, you can find more value in ground-up development if you can get it done. And, and fortunately, we've got our own construction team, our own development team. We're finding these really great parcels in high-rent markets, like $25 rent markets, and we're building new self-storage. Um, and we th- and uh, my theory is, yes, there won't be any cash flow. And maybe there might be a deal out there or a syndication out there that provides a tremendous amount of cash flow, and I think that's great. But in this industry, I think you're kidding yourself, I think, in self-storage. Unless you're buying a, a facility in a very, very tertiary market, 100 units or something in, a, you know, in the middle of nowhere, yeah, you can probably get cash flow on that, but it's going to be a lot of work. Um, but I think it's very difficult to find cash flow right now with the way interest rates are. And I think building from the ground up is where we're finding the most value for the long term. Um, so I hope, I hope that's helpful. We're, bu- we're building 
uh, three sites right now in our growth fund. So yeah, I, I really think good. that's that's a really great description because what you did was you 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 read the market and you you pivot right. If it's if if interest rates drop and cash flow is available, you can jump into that. But for now, development is the best place to to put the money. So so you're going in on that, and you do have the both options. So I think that was a great explanation. The um, last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? You cannot say Passive Income Pilots. That's already in the show notes. It's a great show. But if you can give us something else uh, that you yeah. like to listen to, that'd be awesome. I'm an avid listener of the All In podcast. Excellent. Love that show. Yeah, yeah I, I so, listen to that one as well. I, you know, I have lots of real estate podcasts and investing and all that, but All In, just it's just kind of like they're just breaking down. You know, they, they interview politicians that you may not know anything about. You know, and they'll, they'll they'll do like an hour show with a with a of the candidate. You know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whatever doesn't really matter. I want to kind of know different things, not just investment stuff. So I I, I love their uh, perspective on things. No, that's a great recommendation. And then lastly, if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about Spartan Investment Group, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, our website Spartan-Investors.com. Or you can uh, email me, ryan at spartan-investors.com. Excellent. We will put that all in the show notes. And again, thank you, Ryan, for being on the show. And thank you to Spartan for being such a great partner for Left Field Investors. We appreciate that. Thanks, Jim. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of Left Field Investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution making it easy to follow the money sign up for a free 30-day trial now at pfizer.co it was fun talking to ryan about self-storage we had a few uh self-storage operators on recently and um so it's always fun to hear different perspectives and i like the way that ryan started out you know with pilot crash pads and it is amazing that when you just take a chance and do something like that when he's in his you know early 20s right out of college i am sure he didn't expect that that would you know be the career that he would he would end up doing a, a, over and above being a pilot would he'd turn into real estate and then self storage so it's just an interesting story and you never know where you're going to go and things happen without intention. You know, it's similar left field investors. We did not start this on purpose. <laughs> Almost none of the stuff we've done with this business is purposeful or intentional, but it turned into a business. It was going to be a small little mastermind and now it's this big business. You know, Ryan started out with his little pilot crash pads and now he has a gigantic self storage business. So it's just really cool at little small decisions where you end up. In talking about self storage as the asset class, 
I really like the way he calls it disruption is what is good for self-storage. We've, we've talked about and we've heard people talk about that uh, recession-resistant asset classes. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But disruption, this is an dis- uh, asset class that does well any kind of disruption because people are moving around. I think it's, it's good to recognize what causes your, you know, your asset class to, to excel. And it's not just a recession. It's the disruption that comes from the recession. So it also did well during the pandemic for the disruption there and then the disruption afterwards. So just very interesting the way he talked about it. And I always like when an operator is willing to spend time on talking about their challenges, uh, mistakes. And, and he, he mentioned, you know, the mistake they made on that one portfolio probably was trying to bundle up cash flow and appreciation into the same investment because then you get two different types of investors in there. One's investing for cash flow, they're going to be disappointed. And the one investing for appreciation might be disappointed as well. So next time they would separate those, or as I know, a, a multifamily operator, I know they do both in one fund, but they label it that, that you're going to have a little bit of both. So people, it's just managing expectations. But as I said, I really like it when an operator is willing to come on and say, hey, we've had some challenges with this property or this group, and here's how we're dealing with it. You notice that Ryan spent more time talking about the challenges from the difficult um, deal that he has rather than talking about all the successes he had from the deal that, uh, that, just, that I'm an investor in that, that went really well. So he was spending more time talking about the challenges than the successes, and that just means that's because he's focused on turning that challenge into a success. So I really like that. And then talking about development at the end there, that it is cheaper now to build than to buy something existing and to pivot from you know doing mostly the uh, buying – uh, proper, sorry, I'm stumbling on my words, buying properties that are already built up and you're just doing a value add or adding something on, but building ground up and why that is so much uh, in favor now, given the market condition. So a lot of stuff there from Ryan. Really appreciate him being on the podcast. As I said, Spartan is a great partner of ours and we appreciate that as well. So that's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.